Welcome to Eco-Activist Journeys on St. Andrews Radio. My name is Leah. I'm a fourth-year student studying international relations and sustainable development at St. Andrews. And this is also the fourth year my radio show on Star is running, which is incredible for me to think about. Um, so for anyone who's been a regular listener for the fourth year now, wow, that really means a lot to me. And uh, yeah, mass- massive thank you to, for your support. Um, also, feel free to comment in the buzz box um, if you have been there for all the way or just in general, any comments throughout the show today. Um, I believe it's still under the Star website on the buzz box and I'll check there as well to see if any messages come in. Either way, all the new listeners, thank you for tuning in today and joining me for the journey. First off, our radio show theme for today is Bite the Donut. Um, and for today's discussion, I have um, Noah here with me today. Um, and yeah, he's um, also a fourth year student. Uh, maybe he can quickly introduce himself. Hello, everyone. My name is Noah. As I said, I'm a fourth year student studying international relations and sustainable development. I'm super passionate about climate change, and I'm also very passionate about um, the issues with capitalism and connecting that to the climate crisis. So I'm excited to dive into what we have planned today and um, yeah, to get going. Yeah, we have we have some really interesting. Uh, I'm really looking forward to discussion today, um, especially um, and to to have you here today with me, Noah, because um, I know this is something you're passionate about, um, and it really much links to very very much also what what's been happening at the moment um, with with COVID, um, and I think maybe this is like just a little bit of a starter question. Maybe you can lead us into this one. Um, how do you think mm-hmm. has COVID unearthed us our like broken system? at the moment? Yeah, so I guess COVID is a watershed moment in history. Basically, the whole world came to a stop. But what we really saw in terms of our economic systems is like the workers that really mattered. So the workers that actually mattered are those working in grocery stores, um, you know, providing food and groceries for people to buy. They're not the hedge fund managers who are you know, making millions of dollars. So it's the people who are actually making the minimum wage who are really important. And I think COVID really revealed that and it changed a lot of the discourse around who is actually really important in uh, our society. Yeah, I think it's, it's showed us a lot. Also, I think it showed us a lot of our, of our vulnerability, um, especially to crisis <laughs> and in our current system, because we sh- it just shows so much how we're not living in a world system that is working for us as the people, but rather, yeah, almost against us really. And it's against working those people that, uh, there's so many people that really suffer under the current system um, and that, yeah, where it's problematic. Um, yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to, to, to explore also a little bit more what that shows us about like capitalism in itself, because obviously, um, we've realized that through this obviously global mm-hmm. pandemic, we're reaching uh, um, an economic crisis, a health crisis, an environmental crisis, um, but also very much in, yeah, like an economic crisis. Um, what does that really show us about capitalism? Yeah, so I think coronavirus really um, shows the weaknesses in capitalism, especially the neoliberal form that we have now. If you look at the United States as an example, so basically the US government just bailed out corporations, but they didn't bail out middle uh, income families. So it's about our preferences, right? We're, we're focusing on profit and the bottom line 
but we're also disregarding the most important things, which I mean, in relation to the show is climate change and nature. Coronavirus, in my opinion, came about from the destruction of nature. You know, the encroaching the encroachment yeah. of civilization into previously sheltered forests mm -hmm. led to, you know, the increased chance of a pathogen jumping over from an animal to a human. So it's all about our priorities and our society is so fixated on the idea of ceaseless growth and the commodification of nature that we've completely lost touch about what really matters. Yeah, I, I think that's that's really the essence of it, that we're realizing that this, how we're currently interacting with Earth, the builds up in terms of that we're just extracting um, resources and we're taking and taking from the Earth and we think that that can go on forever. And I think if anything, this time should teach us that it can't go on forever. And yeah, that is also deeply problematic in terms of how we are interacting with the earth and how we think that we can sort of um, grow and develop on it. Um, so yeah, I think it really shows us that it's not made for us. I know a lot of people say, well, there's nothing else that's possible. And, uh, but I think what we're realizing right now is that also this is not really possible to continue yeah. as we always have. Yeah, I mean, I think what frustrates me so much about this discourse is that somehow people are so ensnared in the idea of capitalism being the only way forwards. Like, if you look at the broad scope of humanity, capitalism has been around for 0.01% of our 200,000 plus years on Earth. So it is by no means the only natural system that we can adhere to. Um, I think so. I think a lot of people are so ensnared by this idea. And it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. So it is as much a crisis of our politics as it is a crisis of our imagination. Like we cannot seem to break through this barrier, this capitalist barrier, and to really envision a system that treats Earth with respect and us humans with respect. So yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah, that's that's perfectly said, I think, because how can we how can I, it's just so sad that we can't imagine something else and that we can't imagine living with with less or living differently um because i think after all it doesn't really like i think all of that like sort of capitalist consumption and all of that throwaway culture doesn't really make us happy in the end um i don't i don't know yeah. and i don't think so um, I, I don't think so either. I, I think our society suffers from like a plague of unhappiness. Like how many yeah. of us are actually happy, right? Like <laughs> we live in a society where you go to the office from nine to five, you come home and then you take care of the children and you go to bed. Like, is that what really makes you happy? And I think what contributes to that also is that we suffer from like a severe deficit from nature and connection to the environment. Yeah. Like this, this fictitious idea that we are separate from nature like we live our lives in such an insulated manner and i think that contributes to a lot of the general unhappiness in today's world yeah i think it's all interlinked and it's really powerful to realize that sort of well-being and sustainability and all of these things are really interlinked especially with regards to, let's say nature connection if we have mm the the fact that we sort of as a species are living on earth pretending that we can go somewhere else but then you if you look at the pictures of our earth we realize and then you look at the universe and you will realize you we're so so tiny and we have this spot to live on this tiny little piece of dust and we're even smaller than that then 
And then we were like, oh, thinking that we can kind of be greater than nature and not have to care about it. And I think sometimes that I think that frustrates me as well. People are like, oh, yeah, you, you care about climate change and about nature. That's cool. I'm like, um, it's not just really cool. It's, it's kind of something everyone should be doing because it means you care about life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think everyone should be an environmentalist, right? It shouldn't be yeah. only a specific type of person. And we need to make it more popular you know, to care about Earth because, as you said, it is our only home. It is the only place we know that is actually hospitable to human life. So it's about time that we start taking care of it and imagining systems that are treating nature with respect rather than commodifying and exploiting it. And I think this whole idea about you know being separate from nature really like burst in front of our eyes with coronavirus because mm -hmm. if you make the connection of covid emerging from the destruction of nature because most likely what happened is that it spread from some type of you know market in wuhan but through a trafficked animal that was like removed from its natural environment so you know what do you think happens when you take a wild animal, put it in a cage, transport it hundreds of miles and put it in a bustling urban market. Like that's just not a way to treat the earth. And then of course things get out of control and now we have this massive problem with coronavirus. And we're now forced, you know, to be secluded to our own homes. You know, we have this new whole social lexicon of social distancing and everything. And it's because we are so divided from nature. We're so out of touch with the natural system the natural systems that sustain our existence on this planet yeah it's actually it's so sad to realize that this what we're going through right now is really a result of previous actions of previous ways as we as a humans um and those before us yeah have really acted with the earth and in in relation to and i think it's also really a point to really have a think about that most viruses and are and especially most like bigger diseases and um yeah pandemic like diseases that have spread already in the past and on the earth are as a result of um human animal interaction and you know animal exploitation i think that is wow we actually have to really start thinking about that and start thinking about yeah the significance of that and that mm -hmm. this is all about this is all of our doing but how can we really make sure that that doesn't continue um, yeah. yeah, it's a bit difficult uh, to realize right now. Like, are, are we really on that path and can we take that path? But um, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. And what's kind of frustrating as well is that this idea that COVID is linked to the destruction of nature has not been popularized by media whatsoever. Like, it's yeah. still kind of a niche argument to think that, <laughs> oh, maybe this killer virus has come from us destroying the planet, which is frustrating. And I think we need oh, to change that. Yeah. You know, I... I wish the media reported it in that frame, in that angle, but yeah. it seems like we have more work to do on that front. Yeah, and it, the weird thing is, like, it is there. There are a load of experts that 100% say this is the result of how we're treating the Earth, and if we don't get this into grip, this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning of more pandemics, re more regular ones, and actually more worse yeah. ones. If we can't, like, if we can't learn from that, but it's just really frustrating to see that it's not in the headline. It's not in popular discussion. It's not what people talk about when they start talking about COVID. It more or 
and I think it's really frustrating when then it's become said, oh, well, we have to focus on COVID now instead of focusing on environmental concerns. And I'm like, excuse me, like, yeah, like, well, they're one in we- the same, right? <laughs> they're one in the same. If you focus, if you really want to solve coronavirus and the future pandemics that will come, you need yeah. to focus on climate and the environment. It's that simple. And yeah. I think that also shows the flaws of our capitalist system. Because, you know, these forests in China that have been described as harboring like a wellspring of emerging viruses Hmm. and like the biodiversity that encapsulates that is not valued by our society. Like there's no way to put a price on that. So if there's no price on it, then it's just going to be destroyed and turned into something which you can then put a price on. But that's an inherently, you know, dangerous logic. And we need to somehow move to a system where we actually value, you know, public goods, if you will, like an atmosphere that isn't saturated with carbon, you know, our, our, um, our reefs that are vibrant and healthy. We need to actually value nature, but like besides in a monetary sense. Mm. Yeah, I think it is really in some ways such a decay of our values as well, if you we realize this is if we start valuing money and we start valuing all of those materialistic things more than we value life, then then our future is really not looking bright. And I think, um, and I think the positive thing that where I really want to take this today as well is that there are alternatives. There are different things that we can talk about on the earth. There are people who are thinking about this and who say, well, we can work things differently. We just really we need to change the way we think about our system and we need to change the way that we um that we act and that we that we build that system and that's where we come to the topic very much of um of donut and donut economics um i don't know how many of you've obviously questioned yourself in terms of like how many have heard of the donut model wondered like what is this radio show topic about in terms of like bite the donut and uh, which also links um to this week's theme of the environment subcommittee um and that's why i thought well let's discuss this and let's discuss something positive that can actually be done just discuss a different mo- uh, model and form that we can look at well basically i don't know all just a little bit of a short introduction to to donut um economics and the donut model um it was actually invented by a um senior lecturer in oxford um kate raworth um, and basically it looks at the shape of the donut and says, you know what, that middle sweet spot, that middle safe space is the safe space and safe and just space for humanity. And it looks at, firstly, it recognizes that we live on a finite world with only finite, yeah, with finite resources. So that concept of eternal growth uh, is something we need to challenge. And I totally agree with that. I mean, it's actually, I listened to this quote once and I can't remember who said it, but um, if you believe of what it's, when something along those lines, I'm not 100% sure if it's right, but it's like, if you believe in eternal growth on a finite planet, you must be either a madman or an economist. Um, <laughs> which I think is quite funny because, yeah, very much in the system that we live in, it, it challenged, I mean, it's almost wrong or people don't like if you challenge sort of that aspect of growth um but at the same time it's 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 a bit crazy that that we're not um and that not everyone yeah. is thinking wow well does this make sense at all um mm. <laughs> so basically that the donut model challenges that and says we have an environmental ceiling and we have 
Uh, we only have so many resources uh, and so we have certain boundaries around we, which we have to live. Um, those include like, yeah, certain points that we can't reach with regards to like biodiversity, with regards to our nitrogen cycle. Uh, and those are often also referred to, I guess, as many as tipping points uh, in, in, in climate terms uh, when we look at our climate crisis and our system in terms of what's going to happen. Um, but um, so basically it recognizes that environmental ceiling and says, OK, we have certain tipping points. We have certain environmental um, measures that we can't overstep. Um, that we shouldn't overstep because that goes beyond our ceiling, that goes beyond the safe and just space in humanity and sort of um, jeopardizes that. Um, and then in the middle of the donut is another circle, which is the um, social foundation. And that looks at things like, um, yeah, at our social foundation of poverty and um, social justice and um, all of those aspects, I guess, from development that make. Um, that sort of define um, human rights, that define um, how we want to live on earth and what is fair and sort of just. So to make sure we need to meet sort of a certain foundation from the inside as well and to bring sort of everyone in to that circle in the middle without then reaching uh, the boundaries at the outside. Um, yeah, and I think that's kind of like yeah. a brief overview of the donut. Um, but yeah, it's yeah. a really interesting... Um yeah, and I, I think it's worth noting as well that if you look at the donut model now, we've already overshot some critical boundaries. Yeah. There are four that are the most important are climate change, the nitrogen and phosphorus loading cycle, land conversion, and biodiversity loss. So we're already basically rupturing the donut. So we live in a really, really important time where we need to recalibrate our natural and social systems. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the scary part also but it's also really um i guess exciting that something like this exists to kind of show us where we are at and to sort of highlight that some sort of metrics where we which we can look at and which we can look at in terms of how do we develop things and i think there are um definitely a lot of places that are also using that model to implement it um, and definitely also using this time right now during COVID to say, well, okay, we want to build back better and we want to build back differently. And we're realizing that the system doesn't, isn't working. Of course, those spaces like, don't always get it right, but I think it's nevertheless exciting that they do. Um, I think um, Amsterdam, I think, was probably one of the first yeah. cities um, that sort of announced that um, with regards to that, they want to follow a donut model. Um, I think a few other places have as well now. Um, and there's definitely also like different ways you can look at it. I guess from a city perspective, you can look at it from a government and country perspective. You can also look at it from a business perspective. Um, so there's really a lot of, I guess, room to to explore. Um, yeah, I, I guess one question with the donut model is it kind of is a frame of thinking, I suppose. Yeah. So. If you, for example, have a seat on a city council, with every decision that you make, do you have to think about the donut model and whether you vote yes or no in a certain piece of legislation, does that fall within the sweet spot of the donut? Do, am I thinking of it correctly? Yeah. Well, that's how I understand it, at least. Um, but it is also a challenge because then there's not, it's not necessarily, unless it's sort of agreed to um, in that sense, I guess. Um, and really ingrained into what a council or what 
decisions a city or a country is doing. Um, and it's really, there's a strong metric that says, okay, whenever we look at this, we need to keep the donut in mind. Um, but it's also, yeah, it's also difficult to realize how can we then ensure that that's really uh, done and it's not just another sort of piece of paper, another thing that people say, oh, this is something we're doing, but really that there's an action plan behind it and that every sort of new building or sort of new development in a city is then mm. done in, in accordance to that. Yeah, and I think going back to what we said earlier about this lack of imagination, like we can't mm. seem to break through the capitalist barrier the way that ensnares our way of thinking. I think the donut model is something that can break that mold because it's kind of like a cute and like whimsical idea, but it also has like real power. And like, if you just mm. think of the donut all the time and the way we can maintain a sustainable society and environment, you know, AKA in that ring of the donut, that, that could be a really powerful message. Yeah. And I think sometimes it really is, like you said, just about that imagination and about people saying, um, we want we want to imagine things differently and we want to do things differently and without like saying we completely have to shut everything down and start new which i think sometimes people think about when they think about oh we need to challenge capitalism then they say well one day from the next we need to shut everything down and then start anew and i think well firstly that's highly unlikely but also i think there's so much opportunity to actually look right now uh, just rethink our thinking uh, and rethink sort of that endless perspective i guess in terms of like resources and in terms of growth but also yeah start th think thinking more circular um mm. especially with yeah, product. I, yeah exactly um i think we need to think circular because we can no longer adhere to like single use society where we just yeah. throw away something after just using it for one little thing like we need to think in a way how can we actually regenerate resources and i mean we're all we all know about the three r's you know reduce reuse recycle <laughs> i always find it funny because people love to recycle and that's great and all but to everyone out there i just want to say recycling doesn't do anything it's good if you like recycling but it really doesn't do anything it's more about reducing your consumption and then going back to the circular point of view it's about reusing so we can constantly cycle back these resources because we live in a planet that only has so much and we can't continue to exploit and take and take and take yeah i think that is something that also i think from young on sort of frustrated me a little bit because yeah we need to recycle 100 percent I think that's sort of a little bit of a must in general like we shouldn't just be throwing everything away but like much more than recycling we need to yeah. think about like how much waste we have like it's absolutely crazy to think if you start like collecting waste um, for a while and you just yeah. like has so much so much stuff and it's really hard to not generate it because our system is built on waste creation and is built on the fact yeah. that the the companies or the people that make these products are not responsible to what happens to them afterwards and we need to turn that around and say right well, actually you are responsible for it it's your mm. piece of paper yes your piece of like plastic single-use packaging <laughs> and and i also really yeah. like that sort of protest thing that people sometimes do in terms of like sending back a whole lot of wrappers or things from a certain company and sending them back and yeah. saying you know this is your waste deal with it and um, <laughs> um i know we yeah. were at home um 
and my dad does that quite a bit. So so shout out to him. I think it's it's a really cool step. And when we go to shops, and it's sometimes so hard to find anything that is not wrapped in plastic, especially with regards to like sometimes fruit and veg even. And that's something so easy that you don't have to package. And then he just uh, has taken a couple of times that she just like takes the wrapper off and leaves it in the shop and says, there you go. I, I don't need it and I don't want it. Yeah. Um, it's a, it, it's a, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, yeah, you, you go ahead. But it's like, it's just like, a, I think it's a really state good statement to say, well, this is, this is not our responsibility as consumers. Actually, it is the responsibility of the, the producer. Yeah. It, it's a crazy business model that these companies produce so much plastic and so much waste and they just totally outsource that on civil society. Yeah. You know, it's their product. They made it and they need to take care of the waste process. So yeah. that's the idea of the circular economy is that whatever waste you produce, you also have to internalize it rather than externalize it on society because it's just completely unsustainable. And going back to the recycling portion, the recycling, like recycling is not part of a circular economy really, because even if you do recycle plastic, you can only recycle it two times and then eventually it's so degraded that you can't use it in any product anymore. Um, so we, and recycling has actually been promoted by big business and corporations as a way to appease society about the vast amount of waste they produce. They always knew it was a false solution, yet they continued to push it because, of course, their, their profit model was based on producing uh, single-use plastics and single-use resources. So we need to somehow, whether it's by top-down legislation or bottom-up activism, make sure that the companies that produce all this waste also internalize it and process it in a way that is sound and environmentally sustainable. Yeah, totally. Because it's just, and it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily have to mean that we can't use any plastics anymore, but it is because, I mean, sometimes it is needed. It is a, Mm. It is kind of an incredible invention in many ways in terms of its lightweight and in terms of what it is, how how it's made and how it can be transported. But at the same time, like I think people sometimes forget that sort of environmental cost of producing it in the first place in terms of that that also still locks us into that fossil fuel system. Um, but then also the fact like you just said that you can't you can only recycle it so many times. And then in the end, if it's the if it's the producers and the products the company's responsibility to to do something with sort of from end to start of that product and of the waste created with it, then that I think in turn will revolutionize a whole new way of of how our economy works because it finally takes off all the burden from the consumer to say, oh, this is your responsibility to recycle or to do whatever with, to dispose of. And then here we are feeling super bad because we have so much waste and so much plastic. Most of the things that can't be recycled or can only be recycled so many times. Um, and then that puts a whole dilemma of like, oh, well, I can't be sustainable because I, I, I can't do all of that. And I can't, what, what am I going to do with all of this waste? Which mm. is just yeah. so unfair. Yeah, I, I think it's an issue as well. An example of a larger issue about individualism versus systemic mm. action. Yeah. Because real climate environmental solutions have to be systemic. Yeah. Um, on an individual basis, it's much more about your ethics and your morals. But the idea that you're going to solve climate change by putting you know, some clean recycling out into the curbside is totally misguided. 
And that whole individualistic mindset is promoted by corporations because they know they know that the real solutions will impact their their profit model. Yeah. And um, for example, another pretty good example is like BP invented the carbon footprint, which mm -hmm. pretty much tries to force responsibility on the consumer, trying to look at how much carbon they emit per year. But you know, what is your carbon footprint, BP? How much carbon <laughs> are you emitting, right? Because <laughs> it completely distracts the narrative and the real questions we should be asking. This isn't to say that individual action doesn't matter. I think it is very powerful in yeah. a symbolic sense, but in a tangential sense, in terms of actually mitigating carbon emissions, individual action will not really reach the level that we need it to. Hmm. And I think it does kind of go both ways in terms of that it is important because it's us as individuals also playing part of that larger system saying we don't want to be part of it anymore and this is not okay. Um, but at the same time, it's actually also really harmed the movement in many ways because it's people being put off by sort of, yeah, that bigger issue that it just feels so overwhelming to have to do that on your own or have to be responsible for it or sort of, I guess, that blaming and shaming and finger pointing that is done by a lot of people say, well, are you an environmentalist, but do you still use plastic or do you still use right. like this? And I I think it really harms people from from wanting to do more and from wanting to become involved because, yeah, the individual action is important, but it's it's definitely not everything and it definitely it can't solve our issues. Our issues need to be solved at a, at a bigger level and need to be really taken right. forward. Um, yeah. and I and I think that that's where economics are is actually quite an exciting field to look into because <laughs> it just requires so much change, and um, it requires us to look and say, well, how does this work differently, and how? Because I I truly think that if we can't if we can't change our economic system, I I, I don't know what what we can do. Like we we need to change it in order to address climate change. Like I don't know what you think, but I think it's absolutely like absolutely necessary like if we don't change it then then we can't solve the climate crisis yeah i mean one thing we need to do right now is like completely purge our society of the neoliberal logic that we can grow 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 and you know to an incessant degree like we need to eventually you know implement some type of degrowth because as you said earlier it's completely insane to think that we can grow incessantly on a planet with finite resources. Mm -hmm. It's just pure myth. Like that is just so dangerous and reckless, that logic. And bringing it back to the idea of the circular economy and the donut model, these are real innovative ideas that need to be implemented pretty much right now. Because we can't think about, we can't forget, sorry, about the time frame that we have. We only have 10 years, according to a conservative estimate, to really rein in our warming. So this stuff needs to happen now. So we need like a borderline revolution. At least that's that's my view. I don't know how you feel about that. Yes. Well, I mean, I think it's sometimes scared by it because I'm like, this 10-year target is pretty it's it's pretty conservative, like you say. It's and it also doesn't say that we won't enter the climate crisis. It just says it should hopefully keep us but within that 1.5 degree warming but we're already realizing this now we're already realizing the effects of our, our nature's destruction on us right now and it climate change is affecting people all around the world so already their lives so it's sort of really scary to think that this is what we have right now and this is this is not perfect and even that what sometimes people call that ambitious goal of 
uh, of 2030 and having to re significantly reduce and have a turn in our dip of emissions. Some say this is the year. Some say 2020 needs to be the highest year in terms of emissions, mm -hmm. and after that, it needs to it needs to lower itself on a global level. And whoa, that's scary. But yeah. also, we need to speak about that. And we need to be aware of that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting also to look at how much carbon emissions dropped during the pandemic, because mm -hmm. according to the UN emissions gap report, to adhere to the 1.5 degrees Celsius benchmark we need to decrease our emissions by 7.6% each year from now on. Mm -hmm. But even with this pandemic, with like so much industry shutting down, we're still going to fall short of that um, target. At least I've been, that's what I've been reading. So it just shows yeah. the sheer scale that we need to adhere to in terms of like this systemic wide change. And it needs to happen now. And when you look at our politics, we're not really finding the answers. So I guess one question I have for you is how do we really initiate this change that we need so desperately? Yeah, and I think that's a very relevant question. That's an important question because here we are sitting as students and uh, part of this bigger system, we're like, well, what, what can we do? Um, and I think it's about realizing that this future and this revolution will not be handed to us on the silver platter. It won't be say, won't be said like, okay, well, it's going to happen. We're going to do it now. Like it needs to be demanded and it needs to be fought for and it needs to be pushed on every single level, whether that's, and I think people sometimes underestimate kind of the role that we can play with our voices in terms of that, wherever we're working, wherever we're studying, wherever we are and sort of the connections that through our network and then maybe other people have through their network in terms of really saying for people to say it's not okay to not not care or to not everyone needs to be an environmentalist like we already said everyone needs to say stand up and say well this this is critical and we need to do something about it and government needs to do something about it and I think we also really needed to question some of the ways that um, things are being taught, whether that's at school, whether that's at university in terms of like, for example, our economic systems. Like, for example, I went to, before I came to St. Andrews, I did like a semester thing um, in, in Cape Town um, where I took economics and it was absolutely dreadful because I hated that all I was being yeah. told about was just growth. And it's all I was being told about is just that like demand and supply graph and i was just like well this does not address anything apart from the fact that it's a model and it's like imperfect anyway but like it just like are you, what are we thinking about teaching people those sort of things in the classroom and our generation we're not being given the tools to actually question and think yep. of different models and actually to say well <laughs> questioning capitalism is not a question about just being radical but it's a question about our survival and I think there's yes. some great people who can think about this and who have to think about this. Even as a student, we can look at things like that and we can say, what else can we do? Like, this is not perfect, but um, how do we need to change? Like, how can we invent new models, new ways of living, new ways of our whole system functioning? So right. I think, I, I, yeah. yeah. I, I totally agree with you. Combating capitalism is not to be radical. It is to be inherently realistic, right? Mm -hmm. Like we can no longer continue down 
on this destructive path. And I think what you said about education was a really important point because right now the way our education systems are set up, like we are not given the tools to address the climate crisis. We're not given the tools to radically reform our society. Rather, we're probably taught just to adhere to the status quo and to kind of keep on going on this business as usual trajectory. And um, I think education for the long term needs to play a huge role because for future generations, they A, need to learn about just the science behind climate change because that on its own is already pretty sparse. Like it's it's shocking how many people don't really know how climate change works. And Mm -hmm. B, how do you actually go about solving this massive colossal issue? Yeah. And there is no, like, there is no easy answer. Like all of these things are so interlinked with how do we, how do we take everyone along for that journey? How do we make sure it's just, how do you make sure it's socially just, and it's complex and there aren't like the silver golden solution, whatever, but like, we need to be taught some sort of ways to think about. And I think probably both of us are quite privileged in the sense that we're studying something like sustainable development, which probably does push us more to question those things even in what we study um but like i think there's still so much especially in general that at university and that um at school if it's not directly linked to maybe looking at sustainability that just teaches us and teaches people to stay in that mindset of we can just continue you can you can just study and you'll you'll be able to like i mean we need to also think about what we're studying like what future are we studying for and I oh, think yeah, is, I agree. This is really um, cool initiative that I think started over the summer. And it's more related to schools, but it's about, I think it's got to teach something with Scotland. I forgot the name, but definitely um, a really cool initiative's calling on in Scotland. Um, calling, um, I think it was sent to Hollywood just to say that we want to, um, yeah, we need to, schools need to teach, need to teach us. Um, the skills that we need as our generation needs to tackle this massive problem and it's just not always done like that and that's problematic yeah and i think the portion you brought about university is also quite interesting because when you come to university you take classes at least in the humanities that do challenge the status quo in terms of the way you think and the way you conceptualize society but if you take an outsized perspective university and going to u- university is very much the establishment, like they're the gatekeepers, it's elitist, like access to that quality of education is still really restricted. So we need the type of critical revolutionary thinking to not only be confined to certain sectors of university teaching, but it needs to proliferate throughout all yeah. types of education, especially public education. I mean, mm. to counter like privatization of education in general. Mm. I think that that yes, one hundred percent. That's so important because how can we expect everyone to sort of care and to feel empowered to do something if we can't teach people what it is that what the problem really is and what what we can do? I think it's sometimes taught in a super simplistic manner. I keep having these flashbacks to this moment. I think it was even in my school, um, and we had these classes. I think this one day. Uh, once a term which was life orientation and we did all sorts of interesting things on like CV writing or whatever but then it was talking about sustainability and we're saying oh well uh, well what is it that we can kind of as individuals and firstly I think climate change is taught hugely simplistic at school 
it's just about oh temperatures are rising oceans rise sort of that's it um <laughs> and that's not really yeah i think we need to really look at some of the more complex complex aspects of it um and then also look at how can we um yeah how can we how can we actually challenge that and then i think what the teacher said she was just like yeah i mean what can we really do on an individual level just like i guess recycle <laughs> i just sat oh there and i was God. like what genuinely that is the worst that's the whole thing is like whoever's listening and still thinks recycling is going to solve climate change please just go read more about it because <laughs> recycling is like i mean like like you should recycle right i'm not saying recycling is horrible but yeah it is just so topical like you're not even scratching the surface of a real solution to like all of our environmental ills but i think you bring up an important point because it's not brought up in school like mm. from speaking from a personal point of view i became really interested in climate change and the environment because my parents kept on talking about climate change especially my dad so i received like this information and my you know developing passion outside of school and i'm very lucky to have parents who are very environmentally conscious but not everyone has that you know non-academic support system so it really needs to become not only like part of the curriculum sustainability needs to become the bedrock of education going forwards yeah i think that is such an important and interesting point because most people i've met uh who care a lot about sustainability and who've taken it forward in their lives is a lot because in their own lives and because of their upbringing, because of their parents, because of something they learned outside. I've rarely ever heard anyone say, hey, well, this is, I was taught this at school and uh, it changed my life sort of to want to do something. I, like, I just don't know people. Uh, maybe, I don't know. I just don't know that many people who are super passionate and who've taken this initiative and this passion forward to to study or to do something with it that haven't developed that, I guess, at an earlier or at another school, at a level different to school. And I think that mm -hmm. should really make the school system and our education system think, and it should make them think about, well, how can we actually give people the tools to, to, to feel, I guess, empowered, but also to feel like this is a necessity and to feel, to take that yeah. forward. Um, I think a interesting point as well is that, you know, part of teaching the tools of how we're going to solve this massive issue is also about teaching, like, kind of like anti-capitalist positions, right? Like, mm -hmm. we need to be pretty clear-eyed about what's happening. Like, capitalism has pretty much underwritten the climate crisis. Like, it is intimately connected. And... It's funny because there's a story that ran in The Guardian a couple of days ago with the headline, and I quote, schools in England told not to use material from anti-capitalist groups. And the headline, or the subline is, idea categorized as quote-unquote extreme political stance equivalent to endorsing illegal activity. So it shows like the nexus between like powerful elites and government and their vested interests in propagating a system that has been so incredibly disruptive and co-opting young people into following that path forwards and believing that it is the only natural way forwards. And it also shows that they realize that capitalism is the issue here. <laughs> and they realize that the rising anti-capitalist sentiment is endangering, endangering the way they make money and their powerful stature in society. Yeah.
I'm, I mean, I'm laughing, but honestly, that's so scary because it, it, it kind of, for me, that really mirrors that whole initiative that was also taken sort of at the beginning of the environmental movement where all of these think tanks were formed, uh, these climate denier think tanks were formed, where industry realized, okay, this is dangerous. This is dangerous for our business. This is dangerous for our future. Um, it's probably true, um, but the society cannot know more about it, and we need to spread some yeah. disinformation. We need to spread some doubt about the scientific fact. Yeah. And that's what they did, and yeah. that's why we have so many more climate deniers than we had at the beginning when there were so few less like facts and things and developments around how serious this actually is. But yet we still have so many more climate deniers. And it's because there's industry and there are people who are saying, well, this is a danger for us. Let's like, let's like try and stop this movement. And that's the same. This is also people saying, well, we can't, and any, anything that says we're not allowed to question our society or we're not allowed to question anything, that is highly dangerous. Yeah, I mean, we should it's be dangerous to question in a, everything. Exactly, and it, it's dangerous in a sense just about our democracy, right? It, if you think about democracy as a commitment to a culture of truth, this type of stuff is just so dangerous, and it's very corrosive to the mores that uphold our democracy. Mm -hmm. um, because we need to, we need to question everything, right? We need to relentlessly criticize the structures that we're embedded in in the hope of pursuing that's pursuing something that's inherently better mm -hmm. and something that you said as well about the climate denial groups is quite interesting because naomi klein who's a really well-known activist climate writer who wrote uh this changes everything talked about these denial groups and the way she framed it is that they oftentimes came from the right wing because right-wing ideas like small government you know libertarian ideals that you can basically do whatever you want is inherently contradictory to the real solutions that are needed for the climate crisis. Because for climate crisis to be actually solved, you need like a large government and you need real restriction, regulation and the like. So it's interesting that they realize that the climate change is gonna move the Overton window to the left and that they need to deny its existence in order for their ideology, their political ideology to still have currency. Oh, I mean, just that is so problematic because in the end, we're not, our idea, whatever ideology is or whatever political position people have, like we are all in the same boat. And this Titanic yes. is going down if we not don't get our yes. and change the course of it. And it's not just about <laughs> saying who's holding the steering wheel, who's sitting where on the deck. It's about, we have to move this boat, otherwise we're going to Preach. Drive. Bridge. So, well, where do you think the Titanic is right now? Do you think we've hit the iceberg yet, or are we just like an inch away from hitting the iceberg? I think we're an inch away from hitting the iceberg. I don't know. Like maybe I, a millimeter. That's what I'm hoping for. Like that's what I'm hoping for. Um, well, but it's important iceberg, to maintain maintain hope. Absolutely. This iceberg is so close. Like I, it's it's genuinely scary. But I think. It's something just, I know we have to wrap up because it's almost the end, but just something I think that's also so important about different models about circular economy is that we take out, it's not about saying, oh, if you're not an anti-capitalist, you aren't a communist. I think some people have that weird, weird idea yeah. I don't know where that comes from, because I mean, communism is definitely was not a good system either. It was also born out of no. interests. 
um, and it's it's not <laughs> more sustainable. It's it's actually looking at like how what can we do what we have right now and take the systems that we have um, and do something different with it and yeah question some of those things. Um, but yeah, before we get kicked out of the studio, um, thank you so much for everyone who tuned in. Thank you for um, Noah for coming in. Um, also for anyone who's interested um, to get Noah is on my environment subcommittee as well, and he's the editor-in-chief of the Unearth magazine, and we have some really cool articles there as well, um, questioning all of these things and looking at some of these challenges. Um, and then also we have a, another radio show, which is Sustainable Saints. Um, so if people are interested, tune into that as well. Thank you for everyone who tuned in and hope you have a good day. Dear fellow human being, thank you for tuning in. This has been a live recording of my radio show uh, on St. Andrew's Radio, Star. And this is the fourth year running that I'm doing the radio show. And this semester it runs Thursday at 4 p.m. UK time during the semester. And if you want to join in for the live show and if you want to leave comments and have some interaction, please check out the site standrewsradio.com. Other than that, I hope you really enjoyed it. And um, if you want to reach out to me, please do so. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, and also if you have any suggestions for future um, shows or future topics that you would love me to explore and discuss, let me know. My um, Instagram is at ecoactivistjourneys or at ecoactivist.leah. And the Facebook page is at ecoactivistjourneys. That being said, wherever you are, whatever you're facing at the moment, I wish you all the best. I wish you lots of strength and hope. And um, yeah, hope you have a wonderful day, a wonderful evening. Um, sending my love, Leah.